Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? You're going to be doing even better to know that my book is currently 30% off over at mango.bz, as is all of their titles. So go check it out. There's a lot of great authors over there, a lot of great books to read, and they're all 30% off until January of 2023. But today I have a really exciting episode for you because we're talking about some of my favorite mammals, the bats. Now I know bats aren't everyone's favorite, but I hope conversations like this at least introduce you to the idea of how important bats are for ecosystems and how much we need to protect them moving into a future where many of them are in stark and alarming declines. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Liz Bilkey, who has spent a lot of her time studying how bats impact forest health, specifically as it relates to herbivory and forest composition. Her work can teach us a lot about not only what bats are doing out there, but their impacts on forests and how we can better manage forests moving into the future. I don't want to take any more of her time. This is really important work, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Liz Bilkey. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Liz Bilkey, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited for what we're about to talk to tonight, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. My name is Liz Bilkey. Uh, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I work in the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Sciences, and uh, more specifically in the Human Wildlife Interactions Lab, which is led by Dr. Joy O'Keefe. And uh, my research specifically is really focused on how bats interact with forests. Um, That takes a variety of forms uh, I'm interested in where bats are foraging, where they're roosting, um, how they're impacted by forest management practices, in particular timber harvest, Mm. and then how their insectivity trickles down to possibly benefit the forest. Excellent. And I must say, I am a huge proponent of bats. I love those little buggers. They are so cute. I don't care what anyone says. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Picked a great study system. But what brought you to it in the first place? I mean, were you always interested in bats or... Was it kind of like wildlife and then bats kind of happened at a later point in time? Yeah, I think I've always been interested in plants and animals. um, And I've wanted to be a biologist for basically as long as I can remember. But I didn't, I don't think I I realized that bats would become my career until (laughs) I was um, an undergraduate student. And I started to volunteer for the Wisconsin Bat Program, which is Hmm. uh, just this citizen science-led initiative to monitor bat activity across the state. And Um, I was doing acoustic surveys. So one of the challenges associated with studying bats is that they're nocturnal. So it's really (laughs) difficult to make observations about them. You know, they're flying in the dark, so it's really difficult to see them. And it's really difficult to hear them because most of the sounds they produce are outside the range of human hearing. Mm. But as it turns out, you know, they're navigating the world primarily through echolocation, and we can record those echolocation pulses to study um, where they're active. And to some extent, um, we can identify those calls to species level, but that that's a, a little bit challenging. Nice. So, yeah, I, I didn't work with bats, though, um, for a couple years. At some point, I had the opportunity to assist with some bat capture surveys, and at that point, I was hooked because, as you said, they're they're really cute, they're really fascinating, very charismatic, and so I started research, um, reaching out to researchers who were studying bats, and that led me to Joy O'Keefe, who eventually became my PhD advisor, um, and we instantly connected over this big question of how are bats impacting forests. That's 
Awesome. What a trajectory. And so we're talking right now at 5 p.m. in the afternoon. Most of us are just getting home from work. But is this morning for you on a regular work week or something like that? Yeah, well, bats are mostly active during the summer period. So I think a lot of people who research bats, you you really have to learn how to adapt. So, (laughs) you know, I have to fit in with uh, normal society for most of the year. Oh, no. on a normal schedule. But yeah, then during the field season, we work really weird schedules. You know, we're out until two, three in the morning catching bats. Um, and then we're back up at 10 a.m. to track them to their roosting locations usually. So it's a really um, crazy schedule. Wow. Well, my hat's off to you. It's exciting stuff and, and really great work in the process. But yeah, I, I will say normal society is a bit overrated, but <laughs> you, you do what you got to do. <laughs> and so obviously you hinted at there's a bunch of different species of bats. Which ones do you work with the most? Yeah, there. so I mostly work with bats in South Central Indiana. That's really where I, I worked for my PhD. I mean, in, in that area, there are four species that are really present on the landscape, that being the eastern red bat, which is also my favorite bat, yeah. um, the Indiana bat, the northern long-eared bat, and which are both two species that belong to the genus Myotis and have encountered some really... Um, stark declines in the last few years due to white nose syndrome. And then uh, the big brown bat, which most people are familiar with, because if you've seen a bat in your house, it's probably that species. <laughs> yeah, we actually are rare instance of being able to see a small roost of uh, big brown bats behind our apartment. And uh, I love it. They, they're just hanging out all the time. They're very chatty, especially uh, yeah. during the day. It, it, it's just been a cool experience to finally get to see a roost and, and be near one more often. Yeah, if you ever get a chance, they're really cool to watch foraging at night. So if you are walking around for maybe the hour after sunset when it's just starting to get dark, so the bats are active, it's light enough that you can still watch them. It's really cool to watch them forage. Um, A lot of the bat species here in uh, eastern United States are aerial hawkers. So Mm. they're actually foraging in the air and you'll get to see them do all kinds of flip turns and barrel rolls while they're catching these insects. So they're really acrobatic. Very cool. And so you mentioned trees as being an important component of this. I mean, when you think about forests as habitat for bats, will any tree do or are there specific species size classes? Like what do you look for when you're thinking about good bat habitat in your study systems? Yeah, it really depends on the species. So some species um, use mostly dead trees as roosts, like the Indiana bat has a really strong association with um, large solar exposed trees and actually lives in the sloughing bark under those or uh, underneath the sloughing bark on those dead trees. And then those trees are really only suitable for a couple years when they have that high quality sloughing bark. Oh. Um, but other species like the eastern red bat use uh, live trees. And and my research has shown that they prefer these large trees and they'll roost in the canopies of these large trees. Um, And they'll use a a wide array of species, but we do find that they're roosting frequently in oaks and hickories. Hmm. Nice. Good, good groups of trees, if I must say so myself. But (laughs) Mm -hmm. at least that starts bringing up these ideas of how we look at forest management and the way we interact with forests. You know, a lot of people want to cut down dead trees or snags and think of death as sort of the end for a tree. But... I think research like yours and many others really points at like even in death, trees are vastly important structural elements on the landscape. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, as bat researchers, we often think about trees as roosting habitat, but they're also critical foraging habitat. And my research has shown that there's a really strong relationship between um, oaks and bats and Mm. specifically um, oaks provide obviously um, a lot of insect prey for bats. 
So we know that oaks support all kinds of, you know, lepidopterans and things like that. So I think there's space to consider forced composition as it relates to bat habitat and what that means for the quality of bat habitat in terms of foraging habitat. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you need a place to roost, but you also need food to eat. And I'm really happy you made that connection because oaks are a big topic in the plant world, rightfully so, especially the native plant movement because of the insects they support. And the argument is always, well, you may not like insects, but they sure do feed a lot of things you do like if you're not an insect person. And so bats are a really great example of this. So it's it's actually really cool to see different lines of evidence aligning to celebrate those that host a lot of insects might also be providing the food resources for a plethora of animals, but in your case, bats. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we actually just did this big, or we just published the results of this big experimental study we did um, looking at the potential for bats to suppress insect populations enough Mm. to um, benefit trees. Um, and, And we found that Um, Bats are really important in these forest ecosystems and can suppress insect populations enough that they reduce uh, forest defoliation levels. That's awesome. And let's drill into that in a lot more detail because, you know, if you go through an ecology class or even just read a lot of popular science about predators and their role in the landscape, the example of wolves comes up in Yellowstone. They wolves eat the deer or make them scared. And then that has ramifications throughout the ecosystem, especially on plants. But it's so cool when you start to drill in and see that at different scales, this plays out and bats and insects go together. Well, they have to be, (laughs) it's just the nature of their relationship. And so you think about the herbivory levels in a forest with and without, and that to me is a really interesting thing to explore. So what, what set you down that route to begin with? Yeah, so um, I think it was born from this observation that bats are spending a lot of time in forests and they're consuming um, all kinds of insects that are herbivorous. Um, So we had this big question, how do bats affect forests? And we designed this pretty rigorous experiment to test this effect. That is not an easy task, (laughs) I will say, having... A lot of friends in the wildlife world, it, it, you know, working with animals is a bit tougher than working with plants in some ways. And, and bats, I'm assuming, add that complexity because of the time they're operating, the size, where they roost. So how do you begin to tease apart their effect on herbivorous insects and how that scales up to the level of the forest? Yeah, so conceptually, this question is really easy to address. You just have to keep bats out of a chunk of forest and monitor what happens to the vegetation inside. (laughs) But practically speaking, this is a lot more difficult. Um, Of course, there was, it's not like there wasn't any precedent for this. You know, this is a typical exclusion experiment and people have been doing this for years. There are at this point, hundreds of these exclusion experiments, but (laughs) as you alluded to, studying bats introduces a number of complications. Well, for one, you know, we, bats are consuming insects on the wing, right? So if you want to exclude that predation effect from a forest plot, you have to exclude them from airspace. So your exposure has to be really tall. And additionally, you have to consider the impact that birds could be having on the plot. And so obviously there's a lot of dietary overlap between birds and bats. We had to think of some way to separate the potential effect birds would be having on these plots from the effect bats would have on the plots. And the solution was, okay, these exclosures need to be able to open and close. Hmm. Then additionally, you have to be able to keep bats out of a plot, but allow insects into these plots. And so we had to strike this balance in the type of net that we were using so that, you know, bats couldn't get in, but at least most of our insects could get into the plots. 
So we designed these exclosures. You can kind of envision a large uh, rectangular cage in the forest. And in each of the four corners, you have these steel poles. And then between the steel poles, you have a steel top line. Um, And from that, you can hang this uh, netting, as it turns out. The net's actually, its intended purpose is to prevent, you know, golf balls from striking your window if you live (laughs) uh, near a golf course. Uh, But but it worked for, for us. Um, and we suspended these nets from these steel top lines and we attached it all to a pulley system so we could easily open and close these structures. Wow. Um, so that's how we keep bats out of the plot um, while allowing for birds and insects access to the plot. But then you also need um, some sort of baseline to compare it to. So each of these experimental plots was paired with a control plot that had the same cage on it minus the nets. Wow. And then... In each of these plots, we chose up to 10 random oaks or hickories to um, observe throughout the treatment period. And then on each of these seedlings, we chose up to 30 random leaves to observe. So, you know, that's uh, up to 12,000 leaves that we committed to studying um, across the the duration of this experiment. Ooh, that is a lot. Yeah. My respect goes through the roof when I hear things like that. It's uh, did you ever envision you'd be out there with that much attention to like rigor of timing and and moving these nets? I, I'm sure even moving the nets on and off was a task in and of itself. Yeah, I mean you had to commit to being on the site every single day um, at you know 5:30 a.m. and then again at like 7:38 p.m. Uh, to open and close these structures and. Again, it was just a lot of leaves, but it, it was important to us to be as rigorous as possible right. um, to get the biggest sample size that we possibly could. Right. And so when you're looking at the leaves, what are you queuing in on? Just damage from potential herbivore munching? Yep. Yeah. And the way that we did that was we photographed the leaves. Mm. So and we went in and we photographed each leaf under as standardized conditions as we could create at the beginning of the observation period and then again after three months. So we monitored these, you know, for three months, which corresponded to um, the period when bats were most active on the landscape. That's the reproductive period. Um, And we started that observation period in May and ended it in uh, mid-August. And that also kind of coincided with leaf out. So um, the seedlings had already finished leafing out for the most part at the beginning of that um, observation period. Okay. And now you mentioned the dietary overlap between birds and bats. I I really like thinking of the day and night shift when it comes to insectivores, but I'd imagine their foraging styles are a little different. And, and is it, is it wrong for me to assume birds are more attuned to like eating the caterpillars, whereas the bats would be eating more of like the adults, the adult stages, or is it kind of a mix? Uh, well, so I guess the Simple question is, we don't really know. I think it's safe to assume that birds are eating more caterpillars than bats are, but there are bats that can glean. We don't really know how often they're gleaning prey from, you know, leaf surfaces. Um, And we don't know exactly which species are doing it. You know, we know that certain species like the northern long-eared bat um, can glean and do glean. But again, we don't really know how often that occurs. And if you're going to eat a caterpillar, (laughs) you you have to be gleaning it off a surface. And so primarily, they probably are eating the adult forms of these insects. Okay. It's interesting as a scientist, you got to think of that that tug of war between being frustrated and, and excited by these unknowns. And it just goes to show you really how much more work there is to be done out in the natural world, especially in systems yeah. as important as this. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are a lot of basic questions we haven't uh, been able to address about bats. So hmm. good to know for all those listening. <laughs> yeah. So after all of this effort, after all of those leaves, all of the analyses you have to do, what really came out of this? What did you end up finding when it comes to the level of predation and the effects on herbivory in a forested system when it comes to looking at bats there and bats not there? Yeah. So what we found is that in these plots from which bats were experimentally excluded, insect density was on average three times greater and defoliation levels were on average five times greater. So wow. that's a difference of seeing 14.5% change in uh, leaf area versus 2.8% change in leaf area hmm. um, in these bat excluded versus control plots. And then additionally, we found that, so this is if you are combining the effects of bats on oaks and hickories. But if you separate this by tree genus, um, the story gets a little bit more nuanced. Mm. So we found that uh, oaks were more affected by bat exclusion than hickories were. So oaks experienced nine times uh, more defoliation in these plots from which the bats were excluded um, than in these treatment plots. And nice. hickories experienced on average three times more defoliation. That's... Amazing. And and it really goes to show you the nuance of relationships that, you know, when we think of the direct relationships, it's easy. Okay, herbivores are eating leaves. But when you think about the next level on that trophic cascade, just how those interactions can play out with taxonomy and, and space and time, it's just fascinating. And the thing that always gets me is, is the nuance of these stories is so much more interesting because, you know, we talk about the native plant movement in the context of herbivores. We want them on the landscape, but unchecked mm -hmm. herbivores can do a lot of damage to plants. And it's that balance of having that natural predator in there that really can make or break a system. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's interesting because it implies that, you know, bats may play some role in, in maintaining the structure or composition of forests. And it's potentially concerning because, again, some of these bat species are declining very rapidly um, due to white nose syndrome or collisions with wind turbines. And it's kind of unclear what the um, ecological consequences of those declines will be in the future. Right. And when we think about the concept of uh, an entire forest, how this scales across the landscape, I mean, those are big numbers. That's a 9% is, that's a lot of trees. It's a lot of impact o over a broad scale. Yeah. And I do want to emphasize that, you know, these levels of defoliation, they're not, or they're sublethal. So we didn't observe sure. any trees dying because of it, but we don't really know how that affects their competitive nature on the landscape, right? It could be that oaks are just less competitive in a world where bats are declining um, because of these inflated defoliation levels. And the other thing to consider is that defoliation potentially exposes plants to um, pathogens. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, then, you know, you think about this over decades or centuries, how that can change in boom and bust years, because I'm imagining, you know, bats go through cycles of boom and bust, but insects definitely go through those cycles yeah. as well. And how does that change? I mean, this this kind of result really brings about so many more fascinating questions that, you know, you could build careers off of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in is this idea that bat assemblages are shifting very rapidly, right? Because some species are declining, not all species are declining. Um, and to what extent could some of these species that aren't declining compensate, mm. right, for myotis declines? So I'm really interested in dietary overlap between these species of bats that are declining or aren't declining. I um, mean, that's something I'll definitely be looking at in the future. 
Yeah, I could imagine just as, you know, trees are eking out even minor to us niche space on the landscape, bats, there's a reason there's a bunch of different bat species, right? They're either <laughs> different feeding techniques, spatial techniques, you know, that kind of thing. And that has to factor in somehow. Yeah, and interestingly, the, the species that are declining are some of our smallest bodied species, while our, our larger bodied species like the big brown bat or the eastern red bat aren't necessarily declining, due, at least not due to white nose syndrome. So that definitely plays out when you think about how they interact with insects, right? Because larger bats are going to be eating larger prey items and smaller bats are going to be eating smaller insects. So that could ultimately affect forests. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot to unpack. And I'm sure, again, you've got a rich scientific career ahead of you with these kinds of questions. But, you know, this brings up a lot of questions about forest management and the way we approach looking at what we would consider a healthy forest. I think of sort of the shifting baseline syndrome. A lot of people go out and see a much more mesified forest in the region you're working, especially in oak hickory forest, where instead of oak and hickory regenerating, you get a lot of maples and, and sugarberry, that kind of thing regenerating. Mm -hmm. Like, Management has to start to factor in here because, you know, whether we like it or not, forest management is a, an important part of our economy, but also an important part of just our survival as we know it as a species. Yeah, definitely. And um, important to retaining some of these species like oaks, which, you know, are clearly beneficial for bats. Yeah. And so, you know, have you guys started to look at how different structures of forests change? I mean, the forests we know are probably a bit more dense in a lot of areas than they would have historically been if there was, say, an altered fire regime. How does sort of the structure of the forest change the way the bats forage? Because I notice our little brown bat colony, they go out and they find the clearings and they start moving around these like corridors where there's a road instead of, of you know, more trees. Yeah, there's Definitely. So uh, the species I am most familiar with is the eastern red bat. And we find that there is a strong association between the eastern red bat and these sort of gaps or corridors on the landscape. So we know that they're foraging along roads and we know that they're foraging in or near these um, timber harvest gaps. Mm. I mean, we know that they're foraging in or around ponds. And they're, they're roosting next to these gaps, too. So, I mean, I think for a lot of the bat species they seem to be using these gaps that we create. So I think forest management can definitely be compatible with bat conservation. I like those messages more and more every day because of the pragmatic message that's there. It's not stop it. It's not we need to stop touching forests. It's no, there's smarter ways of doing this that can benefit a lot of different species at once instead of, you know, these targeted projects that really take a narrow view of a single species approach. Yeah, and I think that the way that we've um, started to manage forests is really different from how we might have managed them, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, at least in the landscape I work in, there's a much greater focus on creating um, small openings in the forest mm -hmm. rather than, you know, creating these large clear cuts. And it seems like bats respond really positively to these small gaps in the forest. Um, in this landscape, they also do a lot of single tree selection or stand thinning, mm. um, which, of course, is going to open up the forest and make it more accessible to bats. Um, bats obviously have difficulty flying through really cluttered forests, um, although that kind of depends on the species of bat you're looking at. And so a lot of them seem to respond pretty positively to this stand thinning. That's good to hear. And going back to what you had mentioned earlier about the types of trees certain bats are using, it reminds me of the conversation I recently had with Dr. Steve Sillett about this idea of potential elder trees, enticing land managers to leave larger trees, maybe leave some snags behind 
instead of going, oh, that's a danger or it's unsightly. Like, no, that's habitat. That's potential food sources for a lot of different organisms all at once. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we find um, a really strong association between bats and large trees in life or in death. Again, the eastern red bat uses these large trees as roosts. Um, and then, you know, the larger the tree is, the larger the the snag is, the more bats it can support after it dies. And so um, we find really large colonies of Indiana bats in these large snags. Okay, so now you bring up large colonies, and let's talk about the unsightly nature of bats pooping. Um, our brown bat colony creates a lot of waste it's pretty impressive but i'd imagine if a tree is hosting a large colony that is coming with a lot of nutrients cycling back into the forest itself i realize this is probably getting far beyond the research you do but that's got to play in somehow yeah there there is actually research about this very topic um and i think it's um research by Christian Voigt, who has actually looked at guano depositions Hmm. um, at these large roost trees. And you can actually trace the nitrogen from these guano deposits into (laughs) the the trees adjacent to these old roost trees. So even though, you know, that tree may be dead, um, other trees in the area are benefiting from just the presence of that nitrogen rich guano. That's really exciting. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, being a postdoc, you've published this work, it's getting some pretty great attention. You're obviously still working. You've been working ever since you started this project. What are some of the next questions you're trying to answer here? You specifically? Yeah, yeah. Um, so first, I'd like to work on clarifying how bat declines could affect forests moving forward. So I briefly talked about that before, but um, I'm collaborating with uh, another person, Tim Dival, who, and we are working together to look in detail at the diets of those four species I mentioned in this landscape. And we're going to look at how much those diets overlap, because again, some of these species are declining, some of these species are not. And we're also going to look at how these diets may have shifted through time Mm. to hopefully examine whether or not some of these species can compensate, um, again, for bat declines. Uh, But I'm also really interested in how forest management practices affect bats, and I'm going to continue researching that moving forward. And specifically, um, I'll be looking at the northern long-eared bat um, and how their roost selection is impacted by forest management practices, in particular timber harvest. I mean, you may have seen it, but it was just a couple of weeks ago, the northern long-eared bat was listed as endangered. So, wow. yep. Um, in some areas, they've declined by up to 98%. So Ooh. the species being hit hard and fast by wetness syndrome. And so for those listening that live within the range of this endangered species, what kind of trees on their landscape, might they want to preferentially look at managing better? Yeah, I think um, it's difficult for this particular species. They're, they have a very flexible roosting strategy. Oh, okay. um, so they'll roost almost anywhere. They roost in live trees, dead trees. They will roost you know, in your shutters, in your attic. Um, but I think in general, if you're looking to help bats out, there are a lot of different things you can do. So Globally, the number one threat to um, bat diversity is habitat loss, which is the case for many species. But, you know, you anything you can do to restore or improve native habitat is going to help bats. And that could be as simple as, you know, if you want to plant a tree, maybe you decide you're going to plant a native species like an oak. Or maybe you put in a pollinator garden, which is going to support insect diversity and give, you know, bats maybe a, a healthy snack along the way. 
But I think there are even things you can do if you don't own land. So I think invasive species are a huge problem. You could mm. potentially, you know, volunteer to help pull invasive species from your local park. Um, and you could also get involved in a citizen science project. You know, oh. there are all kinds of different organizations that rely on citizen scientists to monitor bat, bats acoustically. Um, so you could definitely get involved that, that way. Ooh, glad you brought that up because you had mentioned earlier that we're kind of getting better at maybe identifying bats by their calls. I, and I remember there's at least one phone app out there that allows you to attempt to do that. Yeah, I, I think... Um, I can't actually remember the name That's of okay. that. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. I, I encourage the listeners to look it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, from more of a bat house perspective, as a bat biologist, do bat boxes help or hurt, or is it far more nuanced and it's more about size, color, placement, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think um, you need to be really cautious with bat boxes because, you know, I have colleagues who have done a lot of work looking at bat boxes, the size of the box, um, the design of the box, and how that affects the internal microclimate of the box. Um, and, and I think there are just a lot of designs out there that are possibly not very good for bats. And mm. there are a lot of people, well, I'm not really involved in this research, but there are a lot of people who are working to you know, come up with some best practices and guidelines for bat boxes. But I would say, you know, if you're Tempted to put up a bat box, maybe just be cautious of that and consider whether or not there are other ways that you could support bats. Right on. Yeah, I like that kind of advice. But also do your homework, right? <laughs> yeah. So with that in mind, you are doing really interesting, really cool field work. You're out in the woods at interesting times of the day to be out in the woods. And I'm always enamored by people that have fun field stories. Is there anything that you've seen out there or just a curious observation that, you know, had you not been out there at that hour, never would have come across? Like, what has this work exposed you to as a field biologist? Yeah, well, I mean, you see a lot of cool things. So, you know, we primarily catch bats in mist nets and we catch um, all kinds of different birds, including owls, oh, flying wow. squirrels. I think one of my craziest field stories is, uh, so... I track bats as they forage on the landscape, and um, this involves having, you know, radio telemetry set up. So we catch bats, we put a little radio beeper on their back, and then we can track them as they move across the landscape. And there was one time I was tracking a bat, and it was just foraging up and down uh, this road that I was sitting on, and I could actually see it. You know, they've got this little beeper backpack on with a long antenna, and you could Aww. see it with its antenna trailing behind it. And uh, this bat, she flew over the top of me and pooped on my radio antenna, <laughs> carried on her <laughs> way. <so. laughs> oh, that's great. That's going to be like good luck or something, <laughs> or at <Yeah>. least uh, <laughs> take that for putting this weird backpack exactly. on me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cute. I, I got pooped on by uh, more than one gray bat once while observing a gray bat roost. So I count myself yeah. <laughs> very lucky in that, in that regard. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Dr. Bilkey, if people want to find out more about your work or the work of the labs that you're in and the colleagues you work with, where do you recommend they go looking? Yeah. So if you're interested in this exclusion experiment that we just um, published about, you can find that published in Ecology. Um, and that's currently available as sort of an early access type of thing, but it, it will be available as an open access product shortly. Um, but if you're interested in some of my work, I have profiles on Google Scholar and on ResearchGate. Um, our lab group also has a web page, which is 
wildlife.nres.illinois.edu. And I'm not on Twitter, but you can also follow some of my research via the Hardwood Ecosystem Experiment Twitter page. And that's the area I work in. And their handle is at Hardwood Eco SYS1. Excellent. And I will save everyone the trouble, as always, by putting the links in the show notes for this episode. But Dr. Bilkey, thank you so much for talking to us about this. Yeah, thanks for having me. And of course, thank you for doing the work. It's very important. And anyone that's a fan of bats is a friend of mine. And mine. Awesome. Well, again, (laughs) thank you and uh, stay safe out there. But most importantly, keep it up. Yeah, thank you. Cheers. All right. Fabulous stuff. Really important stuff. Great work. So go check it out. And all of the links for what we talked about today are over in the show notes at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. I thank Dr. Bilkey for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And I really hope you read about some of her work. It's really important. While you're over there, please check out links for ways you can support this show. One way is by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. The monthly contribution of my patrons is the only way I can keep the show up and running, so please consider becoming a patron today. There's some kickbacks in there as well. You can also pick up a copy of my book. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, it is currently 30% off until January over at mango.bz. The link is in the show notes as well. You can pick up some of our customizable merch. We now have beanies and hats available, and you can also pick up some stickers. But at the very least, consider hitting that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.